Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I love having conversations with other professionals about mental health and emotions and how we process emotions and how we raise kids to have healthy emotions and how our childhood impacts our emotional state as adults and depression and anxiety and all of those things. And I get to have exactly that conversation with today's guest, Dr. Alex Wells. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a moment. First, I want to invite you to our next group coaching event. It's a virtual event. It's happening Tuesday night, March 21st at 7.30 Central. That's 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 Eastern. I'm going to be talking about money and prosperity. You can join from anywhere in the world. It is recorded if you can't make it live. I'll be teaching a bit. You'll get a guided meditation and process. And then I'll do hot seat coaching so you can come on and get coached by me. It's only 20 bucks to join. Go to christinehasler.com slash group. Let me tell you about Dr. Alex Wills. He is a board-certified psychiatrist. He's also the owner of Perma Mental Health, a private psychiatric practice with offices across Idaho. Alex's clinical days are spent using the radical emotional acceptance method, which we talk about in the podcast, to help patients heal from issues ranging from past traumas to interpersonal struggles and their relationships and many more. Give a Fuck is his new book. It's actually based on his experiences as a practicing psychiatrist. You can learn more at RadicalEmotionalAcceptance.com. And I'd like to thank my sponsor for this episode, Organifi. Today, I want to talk to you about their green juice. So one of the biggest complaints I've heard about green drinks is that they taste bad. (laughs) Most green drinks taste like you threw grass clippings and dirt into a glass of water. The good news is Organifi Green is not like that. When you take a sip of it, you'll be surprised at how good it tastes without any crapola in it. It's amazing and refreshing and you don't have to mix a lot of other stuff in it to mask the taste. It's awesome just in water. So if you want to get the vitamins and minerals you need every day, while not having to necessarily eat every single veggie and want it to be cheaper than buying a bunch of organic vegetables as well. You can subscribe and save, get all the organic nutrients you need for as low as $1.98 a day, or just order what you need when you need it. Go to Organifi.com slash over it. Use the promo code over it for 20% off. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Alex Wills. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording is this thing about like negative versus positive emotions. And one thing that I have seen, I've been in the personal development industry for 20 plus years, and there's, I think it's shifting more and more, but overall, especially in the motivation industry, there's this pressure to like only have the positive emotions. And if you have negative emotions, you're going to attract negative stuff into your life. And you've got to, when you're feeling bad, you've got to shift it quickly. And I would just love your perspective, especially as a board certified psychiatrist uh, on this, this pressure and almost expectation of shifting out of our negative emotions, both that we get externally and that we feel internally because those negative emotions can be so uncomfortable sometimes that we just want to feel something different. So what what do you have to say about this negative emotion stuff? Yeah, that's really a lot of what I talk about is how these so-called negative emotions, the painful ones, the sad ones, the fearful ones, ones that most of us want to just never experience because they suck, are actually our best friends and they're working for us. And if we can become curious about them and see how they're helping us rather than trying to avoid them, medicate them away, fix them, 
work through them. I don't even use the term negative emotion because I want to be very sure to honor all of the emotions. I actually just had a session with one of my clients and we focused the entire time on this emotion of feeling mortified. Something happened in her life and she was just absolutely mortified. And I asked her, "How? why do we humans have this emotion? Why do we feel shame and embarrassment? And we explored that together and we were able to discover how it made her very aware of her relationship to people, to substances, to situations. And it was trying to help give her some wisdom and guidance. And so she could find gratitude for it instead of just trying to avoid ever feeling like that again. Mm. Uh, what? Because I love that. And I think a lot of people may feel mortified or shamed or devastated or whatever. What was the process you walked her through to have that shift? Yeah, I do follow the five steps of what I call radical emotional acceptance. And I give people kind of the, the quick and skinny version. But the first step is uh, to drop the F shield or realize that we have the uh, I don't know if we can use the F-bomb on your yeah, show or you not. Yeah, you can. <laughs> but, okay. So dr drop the fuck shield. Recognize that we have a shield emotion going up, whether it's anger or a defense mechanism like humor or disassociation. And then go into step number two, which is to simply name the fuck or name those emotions, those painful emotions. In this example, we named mortification or embarrassment. And then step three, we want to listen to the fuck or listen to the wisdom of that emotion. Step four, finally, after we gather all of that wisdom, we want to try to decide what to do or act on the fuck. Decide if we're going to do something or nothing or ask for help. And then finally, the fifth step is to thank the fuck or have sincere gratitude for that painful so-called negative emotion. And then there's no longer a problem. We end the battle with ourselves. Mm. Yeah, let's talk more about the battle with ourselves. What's really going on? And I love this, especially as a psychiatrist. What What's happening? Why do we do that inside? Our, we're already feeling awful. And then we're making ourselves feel worse by judging our emotions and not wanting them to be there. Why do we do that? Well, it's not our fault because that's how we were raised. <laughs> I think we come from a history of folks that were, you know, had pride in stoicism and suppressing emotions and, you know, being tough as nails. So we were taught if we can avoid or hide or fix whatever unpleasantness is going on, then we're going to be okay. And we were almost indoctrinated into this as we were growing up. It also makes sense just kind of, you know, it's intuitive to not want to have pain. But if we go a little bit deeper and realize, well, when we put our hand on the stove, we get burned and that's very painful, but it's for a purpose and that's why we still have hands. <laughs> then we start right. to realize like, okay, these unpleasant emotions, they're, they're serving a purpose and they're really giving us what I, I think of as a sixth sense because yeah. it's giving us this emotional data and emotional wisdom that we no longer, we, we can't really get from any other source at all. What made you want to be a psychiatrist? As with all great origin stories, mm -hmm. it was about a girl. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was dating uh, Miss Teen Hawaii when I was in college and we were madly in love for like three and a half years. And we, we had a bad breakup, well, a very sad, devastating breakup. And I realized that I didn't have the tools to understand how to deal with uh, 
you know, all of the psychological stuff, the the emotions, the breakup. There, she had some, you know, personality disorder traits, and I, as much as I tried to fix everything, I just didn't have the tools, and so I became deeply fascinated with trying to understand the psychology of personality disorders and all that stuff. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about personality disorders. I think that that's something that more and more people are becoming aware of. How often do you see that someone has a parent that has a personality disorder or in a relationship with someone that has a personality disorder and they don't really realize it at all? Because they can be really tricky to spot. Yeah, definitely. And through my psychiatric training, as I started to study them and learn, it was almost like you suddenly have these new superpower glasses that you put on and people around you, you all of a sudden realize, oh, I know what's going on with that person. You start to notice these sociopathic traits or these borderline traits or these narcissistic traits or these avoidant personality traits. And it kind of gives you a brain transplant. And even as a psychotherapist going really deep into transference-focused psychotherapy, it's taken years to kind of go, you know, through all of those layers of the onion, you get deeper and deeper. And I think the reason it's so hard to understand intellectually is because it's such an emotional thing. When you're in a relationship Mm -hmm. with this person, you're very blind to see what's really going on. And you want so badly for the relationship to work that it's hard to really be objective sometimes. Would you mind giving some, I know it's really hard because, you know, giving someone a clinical diagnosis of a personality disorder isn't like taking the what is your love language quiz. It's it's far more complex than being able just to, you know, but I would love, I think it'd be very helpful for my audience maybe to give some, some potential red flags. Cause I, I can think of many clients and friends who've been in relationships or have had parents and they keep doing all kinds of work on themselves, trying to work on the relationship. And then they eventually realize, oh my gosh, there's a personality disorder. And in some ways it's a relief because they really thought they were going crazy, you know, trying to like, you know, change this person, change the relationship, whatever, or it makes them really understand something about parents. But I've had many people say to me, oh my gosh, I wish I would have known sooner. I wish I would have known sooner because one, I could have gotten the person the right help or two, I could have, you know, exited the relationship a lot sooner knowing that, you know, there was nothing I could do unless this person was, you know, willing to get help with their condition. So would it be possible to maybe give some some red flags or things we should be aware of, of like if, if this is happening in a relationship or um, if this person is exhibiting the skills, it may be something to consider. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. In psychiatry training for therapy, we most of us had this phobia of telling one of our patients that they fit criteria for say borderline personality because we're like oh my gosh that's a bad word don't say that word Mm -hmm. you might offend the patient you might ruin your therapeutic relationship however what we inevitably found is that obviously we already have a good therapeutic relationship and rapport with this person and when we let them know what's going on that hey you know you you seem to have these traits these personality traits or you you actually fit criteria for this uh, personality disorder 
most of the time there's such a great relief, like you said, and they're like, oh my gosh, so I'm not crazy. Like this is actually a thing and we can actually understand it and we can actually do something about it. So it, it becomes a really nice thing. I think the same is true for friends and family. Mm. Any any red flags we can watch out for, like behavior that may be, may be more the result of a, a disorder that we can't, no matter how much we work on the relationship, we can't change it? Yeah, that that's a really important factor about personality disorders because by definition, these characteristics are traits and they're very unlikely to change because they are persistent and consistent throughout a person's adult life for the most part. Now with uh, advanced like psychotherapy, intensive psychotherapy, we can modify and adapt and stuff to a lot of these things. But if a person is uh, you know, legit has these personality traits and they're also not committed to doing therapy, to working through things and tr trying to get insight, then it is very unlikely that they are going to change. So, you know, it can be anything. There's a huge list of uh, in anything from, you know, projecting to denial. Uh, there's, you know, black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking. Mm -hmm. There's uh, people will oftentimes split and see everything as they might see you one day as like the the queen of the universe. And then the next day, suddenly you're the scum of the earth and you didn't do anything wrong. Like what's going on here? Mm -hmm. There's oftentimes anger control issues. There's uh, irrational thinking. There's self-harm. There's suicidal threats. Uh, it, it's just most of us can recognize something's not right. And mm -hmm. if this pattern seems to be very consistent over time in different situations, it makes you start to wonder what might be going on. What's the impact of having a parent who has a personality disorder? Uh, there's a wonderful book uh, about children of the borderline mother. Mm -hmm. And it really goes into depths about what it's like to be raised by a mother that has, or a father that has narcissistic personality disorder or borderline. Another one is uh, called, and it's a bit of a pun, it's called the gifted child. And the, the word gift is like, this is not a gift you want. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but when you're, when you're raised, the, the impact of what it's like. I've had a number of patients who think that they might have a personality disorder when in reality they were raised by their primary caregiver that did have one. And the way that we have to adapt to living with someone like that, we may take on those traits ourselves, even though we wouldn't maybe naturally have them or we don't tend to have them when we're not around that person. Or we may end up picking a partner that's similar to that because it's what we're used to. Or we may have the opposite. If we're raised by a narcissistic mother, then we may grow up to be uh, codependent and we may be mm. very good at enabling a narcissist and attracting more narcissists into our lives. Mm. Is it the drama of a gifted child? Is that the name of the book? Yes, okay. that's it. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Because I know people are going to want to want to get the yeah. book and they're going to want to make sure they got the right book. And the first one, what was the first one you said? The first one, I, I believe it's... Um, the children of the borderline mother, something to that effect. Okay. Sorry, I don't have it. No, that's okay. That's okay. Because we're, 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 we're going to talk a lot about your book, which I definitely want to talk about. So I love the title of your book, Give a Fuck. Um, that's a bold title, especially for a psychiatrist. How did you come to that? Well, I had this concept for radical emotional acceptance, which is in the subtitle. And one of the ways that I was thinking about going about it was to write a response 
Font's book to the best-selling The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And the title came to me right away, which is Give a Fuck Actually, because I realized I call the subtle art book The Subtle Art of Gaslighting Yourself because a lot of it is about emotional suppression and stoicism and how to try to pick and choose what emotions we're going to care the ironic part is once you have the conscious realization that you're giving a fuck about something, you've already given a fuck about it. So trying to not give a fuck is really a, a way that we can kind of gaslight ourselves. So based on that idea, I wrote this book to say, hey, there's a better way. We, we don't have to pick and choose and suppress and try to fix our emotions. Instead, we can use that power as our friend and not have to have this battle with ourselves. Mm, it, it is a battle. I'm not really good at not giving a fuck. Like that just doesn't work for me. Mm. When people say to me, oh, just let it go. I'm like, yeah, no. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not going to let it go. I'm going to hold on to it for years and years. And that's something <laughs> I have to be, I have to be mindful of is, is I can have a tendency to and this comes from, you know, my childhood and all that kind of stuff. Like I can have a tendency to like really obsess about something and I have to watch that line between when I'm processing something in a healthy way and when I actually truly need to let something go because I'm just beating myself up over it. And I don't think I'm the only one that does that. So I'd love some suggestions on, I know we probably have a lot of people that may not be diagnosed with obsessive personality disorder, but may have that obsessive thinking, like they just can't let something go out of their head, um, something they wish they would have done differently, or let's just go with that example, something that they wish they would have done differently. And so they can't let it go, obsessing about it and just have tremendous guilt about it. How do we get out of that loop? That's a great question. And by the way, Another personality disorder is uh, obsessive compulsive personality disorder or traits. And we all have traits, whether we you know a little bit this way or that way. I definitely have some more of the OCPD traits myself. Mm -hmm. So speaking from experience, I like to think of it as not this question of, you know, letting go or not letting go, because first of all, that can get us stuck. Second of all, we don't really have that power to say, you know what? I'm just going to fuck it, let it go. Right. You know, I, I'm just not going to give a fuck about that. And that works for a second until it doesn't work and you wake up with nightmares about it. So an alternative way of framing it is when you practice radical emotional acceptance, you, you're looking at the emotions with curiosity. You're, you're recognizing that, hey, I'm thinking about it. So that means I already gave a fuck. That ship has sailed. It's out of here. We've given a fuck. It's official. So <laughs> you can't do anything about it. So we don't have to worry about working through it or letting go, whatever. All we have to do is say, okay, these are my emotions. I feel hurt. I feel jealous. I feel angry, whatever it might be. And we try to figure out, okay, what, what is that telling me about my relationship to this person, the situation, to myself, to society? And how is that helping me to have clarity? How can I see clearly with my emotional goggles on to, to know 
that this is the reality of what's going on. And then the pathway forward seems quite easy. So you never really had to let anything go or work through anything. You just get some more clarity from your emotional sixth sense. And then you can walk forward with the right steps because most of my patients and clients, they don't really need my help in telling them what to do or giving them advice. Like they, they're smart, they know what to do, but I just have to get them in tune with their own emotional wisdom, their own emotional compass, and then they, they can walk on themselves. So for someone listening that might be thinking, I don't know my emotional compass. My emotions just feel out of control to me. I don't feel like I can find a compass in there. What would you say to them? That's that's a great place to start, just that that uh, desire to get in touch with that. And then we can just try to keep it really simple. Uh, some of my patients have trouble, you know, even naming emotions. You know, my first name is Alex. And so I always joke, I put the Alex in alexithymia. And that's the term we use when people are not able to, like, name emotions or recognize mm. them. And so I give them like one of those emoji charts or, you know, uh, pictures of faces with different emotions, happy, sad, you know, you can get a couple dozen different common emotions and then they can just point to the one of like, feel more like this one and start to build their emotional vocabulary that way. Mm. What about for people whose emotions just feel completely out of control? Right. I, I like to think of it in terms of intensity. Okay. So we want to name what the emotion is and say, okay, is it a 10? Is it a 50? Is it like a 200 out of 100? Like how intense is this emotion? And then when we can realize like, okay, this is what the emotion is and this is the intensity. I personally like to think of overwhelm as its own emotion because sometimes the emotion is so intense that we are literally overwhelmed. And that emotion is telling me that I need to take a step back. I need to go on a walk. I need to clear my head. I need more time so that I can process what's going on because whatever it is, it's so intense that it's overwhelming my ability to even think clearly at the moment and to come to like a better understanding of the wisdom going on. Mm. So on the show, we talk a lot about childhood, uh, the coaching episodes, somebody brings up an issue and pretty much I'd say 90 to 99% of the time I track it back to something in their childhood. I just can't not, it, it just always seems to come back to that. So I'd love, again, especially as a psychiatrist, how much do our adult issues, problems, complaints, whatever, track back to things that happened in our childhood? It's fascinating so often they do and every case is different but mm -hmm. a lot of times you know unresolved issues that happened either in our conscious memory or unconscious memory emotional memory go back to childhood even you know early childhood i i like to do some uh i guess they call it like uh inner child work mm -hmm. or like some you know, regression work and it's it's really amazing to go back to like the very roots of the very, very first time somebody experienced uh, a very intense or even overwhelming emotion. Usually it, it could be something, you know, horribly, sadly traumatic, or it could be something that was like not a big deal. Like uh, one of my providers was uh, doing an example, uh, kind of a workshop with me. 
and she had fallen down and she skinned her knee. She was maybe age like six or seven, if I remember. And she wouldn't mind if I'm sharing this. I'm not telling you her name or anything. But she was in a very big family at a family reunion. And when she fell down and her little poor little knee was bleeding and all of the big adults came running over and they were also worried about her. And she looked up and she she couldn't understand how she made all of these people so scared and upset. So as this poor, innocent little six-year-old, she experienced like this power to make all of these people scared and worried and, and that overwhelmed her. And so because of that experience and not wanting to upset people, she had kind of grown up and she had this pattern like, you know, reliving in her adult life about this thing. But when we went back and talked about that and she was able to, I guess, give her sort of inner child this emotional validation kind of like what we're talking about naming the emotion getting the wisdom from it saying like it's okay to have this emotion this emotion is normal to have in this situation this was very overwhelming there's nothing wrong with you or who you are she was able to get peace and reconciliation from that Mm, i love that yeah i i find that it just so much always goes back to childhood. Um, and one of the things we do in childhood is we can't really experience the emotions at the time because either we're too scared or we're in a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response, or we're told not to feel, or our parents are uncomfortable with our emotions, or they fix our emotions. Now, that's right. something that people don't realize is traumatic is having a parent that's over-consoling because then you start to learn that negative emotions or bad emotions aren't are, are, are bad. And so when you have them, they can feel scary. Um, so I'd love for you to define how emotional suppression happens in childhood and how we, how, how we heal that, how we stop doing that because it just becomes a coping mechanism. Yeah. You know, a, a personal mm-hmm. example of that, I, I kind of briefly mentioned in the book, but I, I was a little kid and I was, uh, probably only maybe seven, eight years old myself. And this sounds like just sort of a a silly thing that, you know, shouldn't really even matter, right? But now we're already talking about terms of emotional suppression. So I went outside. I don't know why, but I was feeling kind of sad. And my dad was in the backyard doing some yard work. And I just wanted to be around my dad. And so I kind of, you know, walked up to my dad and he could tell that I was sad. And his response was to look at me and say, buck up, stop being so glum. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, my dad's my hero. I want to, you know, be like my dad. I want my dad to love me. So I learned very quickly, like, oh, I need to act happy when I'm not. And it's not okay to look sad. And I need to, even when I'm not happy, I got to pretend to be. And that's how I'm going to be loved and accepted. And that actually, I guess, kind of followed me through to my adult life, which is, you know, this idea, like, you need to put on, put on a show and, and, you know, fit in and, and act happy around people to make them like you or feel comfortable, that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. We all have those coping mechanisms, don't we? And I I think that so many people, and this is again, the tricky thing because it's, it's easy to be like, okay, my dad was an alcoholic and abused me. And so now I have these issues and that is a terrible thing to experience as a child, but you also know that it was bad and it was wrong and you need help with it. Whereas it can be a little sneaky if you have a father who really gave you love and attention when you did really well, and then you're just this really successful adult. And you don't realize that only getting that love and a validation when you did really well was a bit of a trauma. And 
that's the only way you feel love. And so you just keep achieving and achieving and achieving, but you still have this void inside of you because it's what you really wanted from dad is just to him to love and accept you for who you are, not because you achieve something. So I'm just curious if you see that people that have more acute trauma, identifiable trauma, actually seek out support a little sooner, whereas people who more have these little things that are more subtle and are more of these coping strategies, but still have some pretty significant wounding underneath, if it almost happens later in life that you start to realize that. Yeah, absolutely. And those sort of perfectionistic traits are, you know, rewarded by society because you end up being successful. You have great achievements and, you know, life and relationships and popularity and whatever people might be going for. And you realize that, it's it's easy to kind of perpetuate that. However, what I hear most often from people in this category is, I shouldn't feel sad. I shouldn't feel bad because I have it so good. And then they feel guilty because they're depressed or they're anxious or I don't have the right to be sad. People are starving and here I am with my, you know, first world problems. And, and so we have to talk about like, you know, even if you were the, you know, queen of England or whatever, when she was alive, I guess, you have the right to your own emotions, you have the right to feel what you're feeling. And it's almost like this huge category to go down. It's like, all of the different ways that we emotionally suppress and avoid and uh, emotionally bypass things, you know? Oh yeah, we're really good <laughs> emotionally bypassing, and sometimes call it thinking positively. Um, yeah. And there's also are are you familiar with the term spiritual bypassing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do what you what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I understand uh, like that term. I'm not too familiar with exactly like how people use it though. So how well they don't they don't really necessarily it's more like the behavior. So for example. Um, especially people that have done a lot of spiritual work and things like that, kind of going to the like, my soul choose chose this. It's all happening for a reason. Like I am going to shift my vibration out of this negativity and just like really focus on the love and like all is love. And, you know, it's that kind of stuff. It's that using spirituality to not deal with, or I'm just going to like meditate my way out of it kind of thing mm-hmm. versus and 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 never actually going to the raw vulnerable feelings. So for right. me yeah, yeah, for me what that what that does inside someone is it it neglects a, a huge part of the human experience which is the body and the emotions. Like yes, we are spiritual beings having a human experience and our spirituality is the core of who we are. And we're also in this 3D human form where we have emotions and a limbic system and a body that that remembers things. And so to me, there's like a denial of a huge aspect of us if we just try to kind of high vibe ourselves out of something. Yeah. And that's exactly parallel to uh, emotional bypassing because you you're not getting to the truth of your like reality of what's happening. And you're somehow thinking it's a problem and you want to avoid pain where pain is actually often there to help you. So yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about when to seek out psychiatric help and medication, because I know that there's a lot of mixed feelings and thoughts around 
medication, specifically antidepressants, medication for personality disorder, all that type of stuff. And there may be people out there who are just really in a place where they're experiencing severe depression and anxiety, and they're trying all the non-medication approaches, but they just aren't able to get to the other side of it. When do you feel like medication is something to consider? Can it be a temporary thing? Can it be a cast that really helps us get to a place where we can deal with some more deeper emotions? Do you find that medication, especially antidepressants or anti-anxiety, can numb us too much where we 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 are kind of suppressing without even knowing we're suppressing? I asked like a gazillion questions in one question, so feel free to pick <laughs> any of those. <laughs> I, I won't lie. There are a lot of psychiatrists out there that it seems will just sort of throw you on meds. And there are a lot of good ones. We'll say that, you know, I, I swallowed a psychotherapy pill when I was in my training and I became fascinated. And I'm like, it's like Pokemon. I want to collect them all. I want to learn all the different psychotherapies. So that's really my bent. A really great psychiatric evaluation is going to take into account the biological, the social, the psychological, the spiritual, and then it's going to make a plan based on that. There, there can be a place for medications, you know, depending on the person. In a way, we can think of ourselves as waiters, you know, giving people the list of options. You know, here's the psychotherapy, here's the, um, the psychopharmacology, here's the pluses and minuses, here's the side effects and the risks and the benefits. And we do our best to educate the patient and let them choose. So we're really trying not, like, you know, ideally most of us are trying not to just throw somebody on something. But when I see somebody with a full-blown case of uh, attention deficit disorder, for example, which is really more of a neurological issue than a psychiatric issue, because it has to do with the way the brain's wired, and we're not going to modify a person's proclivity to getting distracted by a talk therapy, uh, medication really is going to most likely be the most effective thing for them. But when you get to stuff like antidepressants, oftentimes we can, again, go back to emotional bypassing. We, we can uh, somehow feel better for a while and kick the can down the road for another few years and give them a ability to avoid and fix and work, you know, work around their emotions instead of engaging with their emotions. Mm. Can medication be helpful to like, like like using that analogy of a cast? Can it be a cast to help us kind of pull through things? Or once we're on medication, is it just hard to get off of it? Yeah, it really depends. You know, sometimes uh, a medication can sort of be a, a bridge to help people. Uh, get to a, a better place, give them more immediate relief. You know, I'm thinking of uh, some anxiolytics, like I don't prescribe benzodiazepines like Xanax mm -hmm. because just, you know, really horrible outcomes. We increase yeah. the suicides by like three to four fold. It's awful. But there's some safer ones that can be used that can be immediately effective. Mm -hmm. And then that will give them some time to really work on those, you know, grounding tools and therapeutic insights to help with uh, understanding their anxiety more. Yeah. I went through a period, my audience that's listened to this for a long time knows this, where I was, um, seen a, uh, practitioner and I got over methylated on B vitamins, which really, really messed up my brain chemistry. And I started having mm -hmm. panic attacks and I, um, my doctor was like, we need to do something and gave me Xanax and I took one 
And I was like, I cannot take this ever again (laughs) because it was amazing. It was amazing. I don't have an addictive personality at all, but it just like shut everything down. And I was like, I have to learn how to do this on my own um, because this is this is like a slippery slope. So I'm just curious, is that why you're not a super big fan of those medications or is there another reason? Yeah, they, they are addictive for sure. They do make anxiety worse over time. Oh. You know, yeah, they, they do increase the suicides and they can cause early dementia. Ooh. I, you know, I, I hate to say it, but when providers are talking amongst ourselves and we have like a benzo-seeking patient coming in, you can just see our hearts just sink. It's like, ugh, because you know the entire session is going to be about why this person thinks they really need to be on Xanax. And and you're just kind of like, okay, here's the song and dance. And it's they have this sort of like, you know, drug-seeking behavior and like they have an agenda and they mm-hmm. want to sort of medicate themselves. And I mean, I'm, I'm talking in general, you know, mm-hmm. obviously there's people out there that you know, use a benzo once in a while and it's not really a big deal, obviously, but it can become bad very quickly for people. Yeah, it really can. What are some, um, cause anxiety, oof, that's it. That's a tough one. What are some things that you have found really, really actually help with anxiety, not just emotionally, but chemically in our brain? Yeah. Well, there's a super, super cool, uh, website called breathe slowly. And for your listeners, it's, uh, xhalr.com and it's like xheller.com wait let's say that again xhalr i'll put that in the show notes everybody okay yeah and it guides you um on how to breathe now there's this really cool neurological phenomenon when you exhale very very deeply as much as you possibly can really suck in your gut to get all that air out and then hold your breath for this will start you off doing it for like four seconds and then you breathe in again and keep doing the breathing back and forth in that way it actually causes this um, neurological switch to go and help to relax you and it can work uh, within five minutes which is like at least 15 minutes faster than Xanax can work Mm -hmm. and there's no side effects and it will actually turn off um, inflammatory genes. So it's an epigenetic way to change your genes and to give yourself this relaxation in a matter of minutes. Oh, I love that. Any other tips? That was great. Yeah. You know, breathing exercises like that, the square breathing, Mm -hmm. most people know this, but you know, when you inhale, your stomach should be going out like an accordion because you want your diaphragm to push down into that gut. So your stomach's looking like you're becoming pregnant. And then, uh, so that's when you're inhaling. And then when you exhale, you want your stomach to just naturally fall and to come in even, uh, we call that the deep belly breathing. And if you watch yourself in a mirror to practice, your shoulders and chest shouldn't really be moving very much at all but your tummy should be going out and in like an accordion. Mm, mm. What have you found helpful with depression other than medication? Uh, Well, Jim Carrey had a quote about depression saying, I'm not depressed. It's a deep rest. So kind Mm. of a bit of a play on words. I really love that idea because depression oftentimes can sort of be your emotional mind or body's way of telling you that whatever you're doing in life isn't working. You're not happy. 
what the road you're going down is not good. You don't have hope. And so sometimes we could go into a depression, like a, a deep rest, where it sort of forces us to take a step back from everything and gives us an opportunity to reevaluate and to see if what we're doing in life, if our relationships, are we, are we living out our intentions? Are we validating our desires, our wishes or not? And then we can maybe make a change that we weren't re- willing to make before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think all emotions are, I like to think of them as their alarms. You know, like you have an alarm in your house to let you know that something's wrong, something's off. Um, yeah. And a lot of emotions are that. It's, it's bringing our awareness to to something. Like we're, we're triggered. Um, we're not feeling safe. Um, we need to express something that we're not. Um, or we're just having the, the healthy human emotion of, you know, grief because our dog died. And I, I, I feel and I'm glad that things are changing because um, – I think that we live in a far less suppressed world than we used to, but we have we have a ways to go. Um, and it starts at home. It starts with like having the safety of emotional expression. So, I'm curious what advice you have for parents. I mean, I'd love you to t- talk about parents of really young kids, like babies, toddlers, like really young, almost pre-verbal, like that age, and also older kids on how to really encourage feeling emotions in a healthy way, processing our emotions and really celebrating emotions. Yeah, I did a year of training in a child psychiatry and I learned a lot, you know, as a nervous parent myself, now not by planning, we have uh, five kids. So Whoa. <laughs> I've, I've got everywhere from uh, under one years old on up. But, you know, with the, we'll start with like kind of the youngest and when they start to, you know, interact a lot of things that can help uh doing some like mirroring so if they're sad you can kind of mirror back to them sad and start to teach them those words and start to develop their emotional vocabulary once you know they learn to talk of course and then another tool is uh, narrating so if you don't know how to interact with a small kid that's playing even as young as you know almost one years old you can just simply start narrating like oh look you grabbed the ball oh you threw the ball up there the ball goes now you're crawling towards the ball look you got the ball and so you just basically say whatever they're doing and that's a way that they can start to learn and bond with you and it helps you to feel more connected to them and obviously we want to be tuning into them emotionally so if they start to have happiness we want to mirror that back if they're sad we want to mirror that back and instead of trying to you know rescue them from any negative emotions we want to encourage them to express those emotions mm. so one of my favorite things to do and this sounds sadistic because <laughs> on, on the face of it it doesn't sound very pleasant but if, uh, if they're sad or they don't get their way, something like that, instead of trying to make them just feel better, I'll use it as an opportunity to say, you know, oh, yeah, you can't have more ice cream. You already had your last scoop of ice cream and, and now you're really sad and angry, huh? And then they'll kind of nod and I'm like, yeah, I, I know that's, that's what it feels like when we can't have what we want. And I feel sad, too, when I can't have what I want mm-hmm. and just really validating that state. And just sitting with them in it, and I, I sound very superficial now talking about it, but if you can imagine being oh, yeah. in a scene 
where you're, you know, you're with them, you're attuned to them, you're talking in a way that like they, they really bond and vibe with, you know? Yeah. I see that. All right. My daughter just turned one and she gets very frustrated when she doesn't get what she wants. And I just like, I see you're frustrated. I see you're frustrated because you can't pick up that knife that you really want (laughs) to pick up now. And just like letting it be okay that she has her emotions. And I think that's one thing with parenting that I'm learning is like when it's appropriate to distract her Mm -hmm. and when I need to just let her feel, you know, like for example, this morning she bumped her head and I know if I go outside, she can be easily distracted. And so one of my tools for knowing if she's really hurt or not (laughs) is I take her outside and if her motion stops, I'm like, okay, she's not, she's more scared than she was hurt. So it's just like reassuring her and all that. (laughs) But I've had to get comfortable. She's a very expressive child and her only way to communicate is to cry or to go, oh, until she gets words. And so I've had to become comfortable with like, it's okay if she's crying sometimes. It's okay if she's frustrated sometimes, like letting her have those emotions and acknowledging them. And it's one thing I've always talked about in the podcast when coaching adults on their inner child is oftentimes your parents weren't comfortable with your emotions. So they did anything they could to not quiet you and be a good girl. I mean, some parents do that. The whole children should be seen, not heard. But a lot of times parents don't know what to do. So they're just trying to get you to stop feeling the way that you're feeling. But that can do a lot of damage, can it? Like we want to like allow children to feel their feelings but not be overcome by them, which brings me to my next question, which is how do we encourage that healthy expression of children but also have boundaries, also, you know, help them learn to regulate? Yeah. I really love the term uh, natural consequences Mm. because we want to simultaneously be very validating of whatever emotion comes up, including the intensity. If they're so mad that they're literally screaming or having a tantrum to hold space with them in the midst of that and to talk them through as much as we can, saying like, you're, you're so angry that you can't, you can't even stand up right now and, and to ride that out with them and also allow those natural consequences. So if they're so mad that they threw a rock through the window, you know, they're they're going to be doing chores to to pay for that as well as validating it was okay to be mad. <laughs> you were so you were so pissed off that you broke that window. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. And you owe us 100 bucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you're going to work that off. And so we're always trying to be kind of the cheerleader as the parent and validating and also doing a good job at never letting them not have those natural consequences or on that slippery slope of enabling them and rescuing them because right. then they're never going to really, you know, learn how to be kind of responsible for themselves. Yeah. And it's how to parent ourselves too, you know, like be like, okay, I can have my feelings about this. And then, you know, what action do I need to take? Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, this has all been so, I, I love this conversation. I love talking about emotions. I love talking about mental health. It's totally my jam. <laughs> I want to hear more about your book, Give a Fuck. Um, tell us what we can get from this book. Yeah, I try to make it where the rubber meets the road. Obviously, I can't sit down individually and talk about radical emotional acceptance with every single person and apply it to their lives. But that's where it really matters is like, I want it to become real so that it becomes actionable and the people can really live it out. So I use fictionalized characters in the book to create 
real life situations with real life emotions that are hopefully relatable in some way so that you can see yourself within the book and that can make it you know more real to more than just teach the five steps of radical emotional acceptance to really give people a bit of an emotional sample of it and see how it can start to be applied in their own lives. Mm, I love it. Thank you. And is it out now? Can people get it at Amazon and all the places? Yeah, it's out uh, anywhere books are sold. And uh, yeah, you can go to RadicalEmotionalAcceptance.com, which is the hub, and it has all of uh, my different uh, Give a Fuck podcast stuff, as well as the book and merchandise and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And just last question for you. If somebody is in the personal development world and they're working with coaches or maybe counselors and uh, they just don't know if, if they, maybe they actually need more of a medical evaluation, at what point do you think it's good to seek out a psychiatrist? That I'm, I'm biased because I am a psychiatrist yeah. and ideally we really should be the ones that can give people the most uh, the, the fullest examination, the most comprehensive, and give them the fullest list of options and the most accurate diagnoses. Now, sometimes when we might be unsure, we should be referring to psychologists who are trained to do psychological testing. That's a bit more extensive for certain types of disorders. But I would say if you can find a really good psychiatrist that's able to give that comprehensive eval and, you know, you don't, it doesn't mean you have to take meds. It doesn't mean you have to do anything in particular, but you want to have a really good idea of like what's what, then you, you know, would hopefully benefit by seeing them. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Dr. Wills. I, I really appreciate this conversation and the book that you're writing and the, and the work that you're doing in the world. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. <laughs> 